Genesis chapter 11. We're coming to the end of our study of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. You say, well, wait a minute, there's there's a whole bunch more chapters that come after chapter 11. Why are we coming to the end of the study? Well, we're coming logically to the end of the study. We will come back to Genesis. We'll call that series Genesis Volume 2. And we'll study the middle chapters of Genesis. And then we'll bring that study to an end. And then we'll come to Genesis Volume 3 and finish out the book. But it's such a long book, I thought maybe it would be nice to break it up a little bit and keep them into manageable pieces. So our first study, Volume 1, has been the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which lay the foundation before getting into the patriarchs, before getting into the specific line of of the people of Israel. The first 11 chapters of Genesis give us an overview of the history of mankind as a whole. And this chapter, as we come to chapter 11, is the culmination of everything that we have covered so far. There are hints of all the first 10 chapters in chapter 11. Our text for today is chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. If you'll look at those and follow along as I read them now. Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, And settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Genesis 11, as I've said, is the culmination of everything Genesis has covered to this point. It all seems to come to a head here. God's sovereignty and his design and his command have already been made clear. And man has continually resisted it. He has sought rather to go his own way and do his own thing. And so there has been this conflict, this tension between God and man, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man throughout all these opening chapters of Genesis. It has been prominent from the beginning. And despite the severity of God's judgment on sin in the flood, and despite his spectacular mercy in rescuing Noah and his family, and in promising never to destroy the earth by a flood again, man's heart 
we find is still desperately sinful and naturally bent on rebellion against God. And it all comes to a head here in chapter 11 as mankind becomes organized in rebellion against God. This is a new level of rebellion. But it is in chapter 11 also that God begins to set the stage for the next phase of the story, the next act of the play, if you will, in his redemption plan. He begins to shift the focus, especially toward the end of chapter 11, toward one particular family line through whom the promised Messiah would come and save his people from their sin and reverse the curse. That's where we're headed by the end of chapter 11 and then on into the next section of Genesis. But today we look at the culmination of man's sinfulness to this point in verses 1 through 9. And verses 1 through 9 are structured in a significant way, a way that is significant in the Old Testament. The structure of these verses is called a chiasm. Now, I don't know if you know what that means or not. It doesn't matter if you've never heard that term before. I don't want to go into too much detail here, but I'll explain it this way. Simply put, the first half of the text works in one particular direction. And then in the very middle, there's a turning point. The focus, the, the main focus of the passage. And then everything from then on out works in the opposite direction. And each phrase along the way is parallel from the first half to the second half. Okay? If that doesn't make sense to you, then go home and Google the word chiasm in Scripture, and you'll, you'll see more explanation there. That's what's going on in this text. The first four verses are describing the activity of man. And then when we come to verse 5, there's a turning point. And then from then on, in verses 6 through 8, we see the activity of God in direct contrast to the activity of man, where God undoes everything that man has achieved to that point. And then verse 9 is a bit of a summary and transition into the next part of the text. That's the basic flow of thought that we're going to follow today. And I do have to say this again. This could probably, maybe this ought to be a motto that we put on the front of the pulpit. It says this, there is so much here that we can't cover it all today, right? I seem to think that, and I probably say it a whole lot more often than I should, but let me just say that to reinforce this. I hope that you are spending time studying the Word of God for yourself, and I hope that you are looking for ways to take what you study and invest it in the lives of somebody else, because it's when you do that that you really start to experience the riches of the Word of God. And those of you that have done that can testify to that, right? You're only going to get so much by sitting there and listening to me, and I can only give you so much at a time. But if you'll go home and study this out further, you'll see even more, and I encourage you to do that. As we go into this text then, let's look first of all at man's rebellion. Man's rebellion, that's where this text begins in verses 1 through 4. In verse 1, we read, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. That's the setup for the rest of the passage. But it also tells us a little something about where this passage fits with chapter 10 and the rest of chapter 11. Because in chapter 10, we saw 
that there were many nations and that they were scattered all over the earth. And now we're being told that the whole earth had one language and the same words. But when we looked at chapter 10 several weeks ago, you might remember that I said chronologically chapter 11, the first part of chapter 11 comes first. It actually comes toward the middle of chapter 10. You remember that? So chapter 10 is telling us that the nations were scattered around the earth. The first part of chapter 11 is telling us how that happened. That's what's going on here, and it's building a theme that is going to take us right into chapter 12, focusing on Abraham and his family line. So that's what's going on here. Where this fits in is sort of toward the middle of chapter 10, because the dispersing of the nations took place in the days of Peleg, we see down in chapter 10, verse 25. And so we read that the whole earth had one language. Now that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? There was one language on the earth. But then there's another detail that's added there. We read also that they had the same words. Well, is that just being redundant or is there something to that? Well, it's repeating for emphasis, sure, but I think it might be giving us a little bit more detail. What does it mean that they had one language and the same words? Well, I think it means that not only did they speak the same language, but they had the same vocabulary, possibly even the same dialect. Now, when we come over into English, we understand how this works, right? We understand that it's possible to speak the same language and yet still not understand each other, right? If somebody from Britain were to come over here and talk about driving their lorry and eating chips, we Americans would have to work to understand that they're talking about driving a truck and eating fries, right? And there are places in the world where, from our perspective, people speak English with such a thick accent that it almost sounds like another language. In fact, I just showed a video the other day to my son where it was, it was a comedy video of an Indian English class. So a class taking place in India where they were speaking English. And I asked him to tell me what language they were speaking, and he couldn't tell me. Nor could I. It was hard to understand, and that was the comic point of the video. But even beyond nations, let's think regionally. I'm from north of the Mason-Dixon. It was a learning curve for me to come down to the south and figure out that a buggy is a shopping cart. And that barbecue is something you eat, not something you cook on. I also had to learn that tea is sweet. That's the only good kind of tea. And I had to get used to a whole bunch of other words that we never used up north. The implication of verse 1 here is that they didn't have that problem in the world at that time. Not only did everyone speak the same language, but they spoke it in the same way, which means everyone understood everyone. Now, that all sounds like it's a good thing, doesn't it? Hey, the world in perfect harmony, in perfect unity together, what a wonderful thing. We're used to thinking that because that's exactly what we're being told we should be pursuing right now, right? This global unity, one world, one people. It sounds like what many nations of the world are pursuing today. A global economy, a world government, and peace on earth. 
that there's a problem here, isn't there? Remember the context. These verses are about the rebellion of mankind against God. And that rebellion is revealed in three specific ways in this text. We see it in a defiant unity, in a deviant religion, and a disordered ambition. We see man's rebellion on display here in defiant unity. This isn't glorious unity. There's an ugly side. It's a defiant unity. We read in verse 2, And as the people migrated from the east, that is, from the area of Mount Ararat, near where the ark landed, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. In other words, it appears that they, they migrated toward the south into the area of what today is Iraq, uh, toward where Babylon is and in, in that area. But the key idea here is that they settled there. Now, why is that a problem? Well, it's an implied problem that will become clearer as the text goes on. God had commanded mankind in chapter 9, and then all the way back in the original creation in chapter 1, He had created mankind, He had commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth. In other words, get up and go. Fill the earth. Now, that was not a command for mankind to be always nomadic and never settling into any place they could call home. That's not the point here. So for the people to settle in an area like this and build a city is not in and of itself necessarily sinful. But here's the problem. God's command was for mankind to migrate and spread out and to establish settlements all over the earth. But what was happening here was not one group of people staying put. It was the entire population striving to stay together in one place for the purpose of not spreading out all over the earth. That's what we find going on in this passage. What the people do here is an attempt to avoid spreading out, to avoid being dispersed or being broken up as a group. Yes, the population was growing, so now they're taking efforts to avoid the natural spread. Why? Why would they want to do that? Well, for the same reasons that our world wants to be one unified group today. Because they can accomplish more that way. And is that true? Well, sure it is. But I also think they did it because there's a certain expectation of safety there. Think about this as sort of a global peace treaty. Why? Because by this point, no doubt, they know exactly what they're capable of, and they want to protect themselves from it. Right? So if I keep my friends close and keep them all friends, then I don't have to deal with enemies. Right? So I think there's maybe some of that going on here too. But whatever it is, their united migration to one location and their settlement together is direct disobedience of God's explicit command. And they say it in verse 4, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The very thing God told them to do is the very thing they are striving to avoid. And so we read in verse 3, They said to one another, Come, 
Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. In some places of the earth, I know there are large stones that could be used to to build. It appears that that wasn't the case in this region of the world. But even more than that, I think what we read here is a testimony to the ingenuity of mankind that they were engineering their own building materials. You say, well, what's the big deal? Well, at that point, that was a huge accomplishment. Remember how advanced mankind had become before the flood. No doubt they still had some of that knowledge going for them and some of that ability. They had to start from nothing after the flood. But now it's roughly 100 years after the flood. And no doubt mankind continues to develop and grow in his understanding of the earth and in his mastery of it. And we find that when mankind works together in unity, he is capable of spectacular achievements. Have we not seen that even in our own day, that there are some amazing things that mankind has been able to accomplish beyond even what we can imagine today? And that is true, and that in and of itself can be a good thing, but there is an ugly side that this passage is bringing out that we have seen all along in Genesis. That in spite of all of that, man's heart is still evil and inclined to resist God. And so while mankind even today continues to advance and expand in his capabilities we find that most often those capabilities are used for evil, aren't they? For sinfulness and even for rebellion against God. And so when we come to verse 4, we find the reason, we find the motivation for their settlement and their ingenuity, for their creativity and their engineering. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Notice the repeated words there. Let us. And the other repetition, ourselves. This is mankind looking to himself and to his own ingenuity and ability to make something of himself while paying no attention and no heed to the command and the authority of God. Make no mistake. Do not underestimate the importance and the seriousness of what's going on in this passage. This is not just a confused population trying to survive. This is mankind rising up, declaring his independence from God and defying his rule. We learned in chapter 10 who their leader was, didn't we? Who was he? Nimrod. Chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. Nimrod, this evil, violent, vicious tyrant of a leader. And we also learned in chapter 10 and later in this text what the name of this city was that they were building. Babel or what would later become known as Babylon, and rise up to that position in Scripture of representing the kingdom of man, ruled ultimately by the evil one and characterized by defiant rebellion against God. 
and mistreatment of his people. That is the nature of what's going on in this text. They are unified, yes, but they are unified in their sinfulness and in their rebellion. It is a defiant unity. It is a rejection of God and His commands. And this rebellion is more than just a social declaration of independence. It wasn't just a physical city that they were building and that was in their minds. It wasn't just a defiant earthly unity. Their rebellion also was marked by a deviant religion. In the middle of verse 4, they call for the building of a tower with its top in the heavens. And the implication there is not that towers are bad in and of themselves. So don't go to a big city and look at a skyscraper and think, ah, that's inherently evil. That's not what this is talking about. What makes this tower significant in the story is what it was and what it stood for. This particular tower was what is known as a ziggurat. It was a tiered tower with multiple levels and stairways going up each level, sometimes in various directions and every which way. But in the Babylonian culture, which was beginning right here, and as that developed, these towers were built primarily for religious purposes. They were designed to reach up into the sky in order to create a bridge from man to the gods and from the gods to man. And at the top of these towers would be a shrine to the gods. And they were viewed as the stairway by, by which the gods came down to dwell with man. So there is an implication of false religion here that underlies their actions, that guides what they're doing as they build this tower. And that's really not surprising, is it? I mean, should that surprise us? I don't, I don't think so, because we have seen from the very beginning that mankind is made for worship, that mankind's heart is inclined to worship. Whether we worship the true God or something else, we are worshipers by nature. And the inclination to worship is woven into the very fiber of our being, so much so that I can stand up here and with confidence say, Every single one of you is worshiping someone or something today. And so is every other person who's driving by on these roads around us. Because that is who we are in our being. And when we reject God, and when we refuse to worship God, we inevitably fill that void with worship and dedication to something else. John Calvin has famously said that the human heart is an idol factory. We are constantly in our nature producing, inventing something to worship. And the truth is that we are all naturally inclined to devote ourselves to something, whether it be a person, some cultural icon or celebrity, or whether it be a hobby or whether it be a cause or a movement. And the reality is that whatever we devote ourselves to very quickly becomes our God. And so in our culture today, we don't build ziggurats. We build stadiums. We build malls. We build monuments. 
We build all sorts of things that take our attention away from the one true God and place our affections squarely on something else. Don't we? That is our nature. And this tower then, in this passage, becomes a testimony to the false and deviant worship that is driving the actions of mankind. They were rejecting God's command because they were rejecting God Himself. And in His place, they were following the desires of someone else. They were indeed worshiping someone else. Now, who was it? Well, it wasn't another god that they envisioned up in the sky. In fact, legend has it that Nimrod walked up to the top of this tower at some point. Now, this isn't in Scripture, so I don't know, but the legend is that he took an arrow and shot it up into the clouds and proclaimed that God is dead. <laughs> That's the attitude. So they're not worshiping some god in the clouds. Who are they worshiping? Well, that brings us to another phrase in the middle of verse 4 that reveals not just their defiant unity and their deviant religion, but also their disordered ambition. What it was they were really seeking and working for. They say, let us make a name for ourselves. There it is. And that sort of summarizes the whole nature of sin from the very beginning, doesn't it? God creates this beautiful and perfect world. He endows mankind with incredible ability to subdue the earth, to discover and to cultivate, to advance in technology and ingenuity and creativity and productivity. God gives that all to mankind for good purposes. And most of all, God creates all of this for the purpose of fellowship with Him that we would know Him, that we would worship Him, that we would use this earth to serve Him, which is the greatest joy in all existence. But mankind takes all of those gifts from God and uses them for selfish purposes. To push God out of the picture and to serve our own lusts and ambitions. Tell me, friends, is that not the case? And so it was at Babel. They used God's world and God's gifts, and they built this city not for God nor for His purposes, but for their own. They built it in defiance against God as a declaration of their own self-confidence and self-sufficiency. And we look at them from this perspective and we say, oh, bad, bad. What this passage is doing is not just revealing the spirit of the age back then. That's the spirit of the age now. That is exactly why the commercials we see on TV are the way they are. That is exactly why the political climate of our world is the way it is. That is exactly why so many Americans, even Christians, can't take their eyes off their phones long enough to put them on their Bibles. That's the world we live in. This is the spirit of the age. And it, in, it, it infiltrates every aspect of our daily lives if we are not watching. As I mentioned at the very beginning of our study of Genesis, the human heart is no different today than it was back then. We're just more modern. We've got some more technology than they had 
back then, but our nature is still the same, and it has been in every age and in every generation. The effect of sin in our lives makes it natural for us to look away from God and to look within ourselves for everything we want and need, for the answers to life's questions. This is the ugly side of the rugged individualism that made our nation what it is today, right? We celebrate this rugged individualism, and there's been some great stuff that's come because of it, yes, but there is an ugly side to it, and we're seeing it here. And we must beware that this rugged individualism not pull us away from our necessary devotion to and dependence upon our God. For if we take that away, we have undercut everything that it means that God made us human. And likewise, looking at our world today, have you noticed how much our world today talks about the science? Have you caught that? Listen to the radio. Watch the watch cable news. What a, no, don't watch cable news. But if you do happen to notice this, how much they talk about the science. The science. The science. It's clear that our society today has reached a point of such learning and discovering that mankind no longer senses any need for God and has no concept that there could be another dimension to life other than the science. Right? So, science, whatever we think that is, and regardless of how reliable it is, Science is king, and so mankind is capable of anything. And so belief in God is no longer necessary. In fact, it's a hindrance. It's a dead weight on man's progress, and it is to be put aside. That is the world we live in today. And we see it illustrated in Genesis 11. So, if you're among us this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ you need to understand today that there is a fundamental and dangerous flaw in your worldview. Any worldview apart from faith in Christ is built on a faulty and unreliable foundation because it is only faith in Christ and what He has revealed in His Word that we are enabled to make any sense of the world around us. Without it, we have no idea what to do with the science. Do we? You see that as you listen to the news too, because one scientist says this and another says that, and we're all over the map on the science. And what goes for science this week is going to be different next week or in a month. And we don't know how to properly make use of any of our achievements without the guiding principles of God's design and God's word in our minds. Have you ever noticed that? The science changes almost weekly, and then it is used for political purposes to gain power and control. And our advances in technology, what about that? Well, we've seen that before. How much of it is used to feed our lusts and to build our self-confidence and to distract us from the truth? So friends, what mankind needs today is not more advances, more earthly achievements, but a fundamentally new life, as if rising from the dead. And that's exactly how Scripture talks about salvation. 
being made alive in Jesus Christ, being reconciled to God, forgiven of our sin, rescued from judgment, renewed in the spirit of our minds. That is what you need today. And I urge you, if you have not done so, to forsake your self-confidence and to cry out in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That is the only answer to the deepest, most fundamental root problem of mankind. And Christians, don't underestimate the power of that spirit of the age in your own life. You are not immune from this temptation. Take some time now, this afternoon, throughout this week, to consider your own heart and to see what has distracted you from a wholehearted devotion to God. What is becoming another idol in your life? And beloved, put it away from you. Set your eyes and your minds and your hearts once again on Christ and on His truth. Now, having seen the nature of man's rebellion against God, and having seen how that is continuing to have an effect even today, many of us have recognized the evil in the world. Even as I describe all of that, I'm seeing heads going, yep, yep, yep. And some of you, no doubt, are sitting here saying, how long, O Lord? How long is evil? to continue to have its influence in this world. Do you not know? Do you not care? Are you not going to do something about it? The rest of this passage answers those questions very powerfully by showing us God's awareness of what is going on. Yes, He does know. Yes, He does care. And we'll see also that, yes, he is going to do something about it. So we read in verse 5 of God's awareness. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. I love the imagery there. This is one of, I think, one of the most comical verses in Scripture. Mankind has arrogantly built this spectacular city and tower as a monument to his own greatness and his own ability. And the imagery is that God has to stoop way down in order to see it. Do you see that irony there? That's the imagery that's going on. And this is a reminder again of how foolish our arrogance is. We get so puffed up about our own achievements. And we so easily forget that we and our achievements are just a speck of dust in the big picture. We don't even begin to comprehend the height and depth and length and breadth of God and His wisdom and His power. We think we're something. But then, as we look at this, we are also reminded not just of the foolishness of our arrogance, but we're reminded that no matter how small the rebellion is, God is aware. He knows. 
And as we look at the social and political and moral state of our world today, not one aspect of it escapes God's notice. And none of it surprises Him. He is aware. He does care. In fact, He cares more than you do. And so we can take courage and we can have hope because our God knows and He is in sovereign control and He will deal with it. And that brings us finally to verses 6-9 through where we see in contrast to man's rebellion now, God's action, the undoing of everything mankind had erected against God. So first of all, we see God's observation of it in verse 6. His view and His assessment of what mankind was doing. We read, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now that, actually, there's a positive aspect to that. God is acknowledging and affirming that mankind indeed has been created with incredible potential and ability. God made it that way. He made it that way from the beginning. And that image of God in man is still there. Humanity is capable of accomplishing amazing things. And some of those things we have experienced in this world already by God's common grace. And we continue to experience them. But there is a negative side to this as well. And that's what this passage is illustrating. The point is this. What is God saying here? Apart from the fear of God and the submission to His commands and designs, mankind and His rebellion against God, no matter how unified and prosperous He gets, will in His progress exceed His boundaries and try to take the place of God, and He will end up destroying Himself. And we are seeing that today too, aren't we? What God is saying here is that mankind, united in this way, in independence from God, will do all his own desire, and that will be catastrophically destructive for mankind. We've seen it. We've made astounding advances in science, and what have we done with it? We kill, we drug, and we mutilate. We have made astounding advances in technology, and what do we do with it? We serve our lusts and we invent new ways to be violent. We have made astounding advances in general knowledge. And what do we do with it? We write off God's word as unnecessary. And we forsake his truth, putting more confidence in our own ideas and our own philosophies. And in it all, we find that for all our progress... We are not progressing as a society. We are degenerating. I've said it before. We are watching Romans 1 unfold in our own society today. And that is God's assessment of mankind's rebellion, not just at Babel, but in every age. And what does he do about it? We could listen to a scripture reading, <laughs> but I already did that. It's all right. What does God do about this? Look at verses 7 and 8. 
and we will see his judgment. God says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left, not, they left off building the city. Now, I know that no one, no matter how advanced their knowledge or self-confidence was, no one would have seen that coming. And that's actually kind of cool, too, that, you know, God didn't send a thunderbolt from heaven. That's what we imagine, right? That's not what happens. But did you notice any sort of sarcastic irony here, too? In what God says in verse 7? Mankind in verses 3 and 4 repeated that self-confident, independent refrain, Come, let us. And here God uses the same language. Come, let us. Almost as if he's saying, oh yeah? Watch this. And once again, it reminds us that man at his greatest is no match for the sovereignty of God. And just like that, the languages of the world were born and the defiant citizens of the city come together to work on construction and they can no longer, they find they can no longer communicate with one another. Think about the chaos. Think about the anger and the confusion and the conflict that would result. God in his sovereignty not only confounds their language, but I believe also in a supernatural way disperses them from the valley and all throughout the world. And once again, we see two powerful reminders here in what God does. First of all, we see that mankind's rebellion is no match for God's sovereign power. And second of all, we see that God's purpose will be fulfilled with or without man's cooperation. He had commanded man to fill the earth and they refused. And God still made it happen. Though the entire world rise together as one to shake his fist at God, not one aspect of God's purpose can be thwarted. Do you believe that today? You need to. Because mankind is rising up in rebellion against God in our own age and continues to do so. Mankind can organize in perfect unity to throw off the authority of God, but his efforts are not only vain, they are pitiful. God will fulfill his purpose, and he will judge all who rebel. We read about this not only here in Genesis 2, and we read about it at the end of Scripture in the book of Revelation when he does it finally and fully, but we also read about it in Psalm 2, don't we? You know Psalm 2? The first six verses of Psalm 2 say this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. And that's, that's the idea of a treaty. These nations who can't get along, they're unified in this. They take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And then what do we read? God says, oh no, what am I going to do? No. He who sits in the heavens laughs. <laughs> the Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Nice try, nations. But I've set my king up. Now, Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9, demonstrate that God's sovereign power and authority are infinitely superior to man's greatest efforts. And Psalm 2 declares it. But there is something more, and I want us to close with this. Psalm 2 also looks ahead, specifically to Jesus Christ, the Savior King. That's where Psalm 2 is headed. That's where the, the thrust of Genesis is headed. So for our purposes... In this outline, I'm calling verse 9 preparation. It summarizes the text, but it also looks ahead to the bigger picture, and it prepares us for where Genesis is going to go. And it says this, Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, there's no new information there, except to remind us that the city was called Babel. And why is that significant? Well, because it's a play on words, because confusion in the Hebrew word Babel. Okay, yeah, that's there, but there's something bigger going on here too. In the Babylonian language, the word Babel meant gate of God, ironically. But in the Hebrew language, it means confusion. And that's how we understand it in the English word, in the English language too, right? We just spell it differently, B-A-B-B-L-E. But as we have seen before, this city is more than just one isolated city. It is a significant feature in the storyline of Scripture and the unfolding revelation of God's salvation. And a quick look at this city and how it factors into the story will we'll focus our minds on Christ. Babel was the first record in Scripture of an organized effort to rebel against God and to declare my, mankind's independence from Him. And Babel was led by an evil and vicious leader named Nimrod. And as the story of Scripture unfolds, this city would eventually grow into an empire called Babylon that was also led by an evil and vicious king named Nebuchadnezzar and others. This empire would represent the greater kingdom of mankind, marked by rebellion against God and persecution of his people. And then as we've progressed through the rest of the story, all the way to the end, we find that once again Babylon will rise. And again it will be led by an evil and vicious leader, this time called Antichrist. And in every stage of the story, we find that God has a decisive victory over evil and he rescues his people. But all of this highlights the tension that exists throughout all Scripture, the conflict between these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of rebellious man. And the truth is, all of us, by nature, belong to the kingdom of rebellious man. And we are the object of God's just and complete judgment on all sin and all sinners. But as the story of Scripture progresses, we find that because of Christ, there also is a way for us to be delivered from that kingdom and to be delivered from that judgment and to be brought into the kingdom of God, not just as citizens, but as children of God. 
It is by God's grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone, that we enter into that kingdom. And what is amazing here, even further than that, is that the kingdom of man, in verse 4, was seeking to make what? To make a name for itself. And they failed catastrophically. Well, I guess they did make a name for themselves, because here, thousands of years later, we're still reading about them. But that's not what they were trying to do. But the rest of chapter 11 is setting the stage for chapter 12. And in chapter 12, God makes a covenant with one man named Abraham, and he promises this man in verse 2 of chapter 12 that he will make his name great. The very thing Babel was trying to do but failed miserably. And that name that will become great is not achieved by man. It is not achieved by Abraham himself. It is not achieved in his own way or on his own terms, but it is given by God in grace and always in terms of salvation. Through Abraham and his great name would come the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would save his people from their sins. And then moving on from that even further, what's more, when we get all the way to the end of the story in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, Christ has a promise for his church, what does he say? The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. There is a great name that is promised to all of God's people. But that name is not a testimony to man's greatness, and it is not a testimony to man's brilliance and independence. It is a testimony only to God's grace in saving sinners and giving us peace with God through Jesus Christ. And it belongs to all who surrender, who lay down their rebellion against God and call on the name of Jesus Christ for salvation. The kingdom of man will not prosper. It will not prosper, not in eternal matters. It will be judged by God. But the kingdom of God will stand forever. It will stand victoriously forever. And there is a place in that kingdom for all who come by faith in Jesus Christ alone. So the question I leave you with this morning is, in which kingdom are you a citizen today? And are you living your life today as a citizen of that kingdom? Let's pray.